This is the Illinois. This is my time. This is our time. Grab that bull by the horns and own it, man. Today's your day. Let's go to work. Welcome to the Illinois podcast. The Illinois. Cutting through the noise of Illinois politics. Here's your host, Patrick Fingston. Well, hey there. Good afternoon. Welcome to our weekly live stream and podcast. I'm Patrick Fingston. I write the political newsletter, The Illinois, which you can find at theillinoiswiththez.com. Coming up, we'll be joined by State Senator Robert Martwick. He's a Democrat from the northwest side of Chicago. We'll discuss criminal justice reform and the controversy and, and political fuss surrounding the end of cash bail in the state. We'll also preview the first debate in the race for governor, which happens Thursday night, tomorrow night. Uh, down in Bloomington. We'll talk about with uh, Pat Brady, former chairman of the Illinois Republican Party. Uh, I want to start, though, with the Illinois Supreme Court and how we should be expecting more out of candidates for the highest court in the state. Former state representative, Democratic state representative, now appellate court justice Mary Kay O'Brien released a television ad last week on abortion. It's not a big shock for a Democratic candidate. Let's let's take a look. Now that the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, in Illinois, extreme groups are trying to take away women's freedom to choose. And this state Supreme Court race will decide who controls our court. Mike Burke says he agreed with the decision to overturn Roe. He's supported by the extreme groups that want to ban all abortion for Illinois women. Justice Mary Kay O'Brien is supported by pro-choice groups and in the past fought to protect a woman's freedom. Illinois has a clear choice. Mary Kay O'Brien, a justice for all. So the the ad claims Burke, who served on the Supreme Court since he was appointed in 2020, says he agreed with the decision to overturn Roe while superimposing supports overturning Roe on the screen. The problem is he never said that. The ad does not come with a citation, so we asked the O'Brien campaign to cite their source. Spokesperson provided a link to a public access TV interview Burke did in July. In the interview, Burke never claims he supports or agrees with the decision to overturn Roe. He does accurately say abortion is not an enumerated right in the U.S. Constitution, but does not offer an opinion whether it should or shouldn't be. And on top of that, the Democratic-controlled All for Fairness PAC is now running an ad that claims Burke wants to ban abortion. Burke has never said that publicly, and he's never ruled on a case involving the issue. So where does it come from? It, it seems as if it's almost out of thin air. Sadly, we're seeing judicial races, which should be held to higher ethical standards, and they have uh, canons and rules that they have to follow, but they're turning into partisan mudslinging, and that's not new. We've had partisan fights over the courts for years, but more than anything, we're now seeing judicial candidates just make stuff up. That isn't right. And, and I hope we would expect more out of our judicial candidates and nominees. And this is clearly not going to get any nicer uh, over the last five weeks before Election Day. We are pleased to be welcomed by State Senator Rob Martwick, a uh, Democrat from Chicago who is... Uh, uh, been very vocal on the criminal justice reform issue, and and somebody that uh, has a good perspective on it. I think as as a you know obviously a Democrat, a progressive, but but has a, a district that 
uh, has a lot of uh, police officers, first responders that live in it too. So he's kind of getting this from all sides, I'm sure. Um, Senator, I, I'll ask you the same thing that I asked some of your, your other colleagues. Uh, considering that, that many Democrats uh, admit to this point that there need to be changes to the bill before January 1st, did you guys get this right or, or, is, or were, was it too rushed? Were there mistakes? Um, so I, I smile a little bit because I like to say, as I usually say, um, you know, which bill is going to get it right? Because I don't, you know, um, I mean, that's what we do is we we basically say, here's an idea. Um, but really, realistically speaking, in many instances, you don't know if it's going to work or not for a year, two years, three years after it's been implemented. That's the nature of change. That's the nature of reform. People talk about reform as like making things better. Uh, reform means change. It doesn't necessarily mean making it better. Don't get me wrong. That's the intent. You're trying to make it better, um, but sometimes you don't know. And anything as profound as this, um, the idea that you're going to get it right, right out of the box is foolish. You've got to really be full of yourself if you think you've got it nailed down and buttoned up tight. Um, and so what I would say is that um, this was passed uh, and by evidence of the fact that we've combed through it and before anything has ever been implemented, um, we have made um, pretty substan substantive changes, substantial changes and substantive changes to the law before those provisions have been implemented. And there was a reason that they gave the Pretrial Fairness Act two full years before implementation so that they could work through these issues. The bill's sponsors have said from the get-go that they intended to, uh, you know, work uh, with stakeholders to find to fine-tune this to make sure that it could be implemented correctly and properly. So the answer is uh, the short answer is: Did we get it right? Um, I, you know, I don't think anybody ever gets it right right out of the gate. But I think the most important thing is not whether you got it right or wrong when you drafted the bill or even when you passed the bill, but that you're willing to accept the fact that. Uh, once the application begins, that you have to be prepared to be flexible to make sure that it works so that people are not being harmed and you're doing the most good. And I think um, if you strip all the political rhetoric out of it, that's what's happening. Uh, and I, I want to say this too, two years that the uh, Illinois Courts uh, Implementation Tax Task Force has been working on this issue diligently, and this includes Democratic and Republican elected leaders, uh, Senator John Curran, uh, Representative Dan Ugasti sit on this. Um, it is Supreme Court justices, it is the Attorney General, it's pretrial services, state's attorneys, public defenders, sheriffs, chiefs of police. So the stakeholders are at the table doing good work on this. And I think it's reasonable that we would expect that we would take the recommendations and and uh, amend the bill to, to reflect those. Cash bail is is obviously the big talking point right now. The, yeah. the thing that, that many people are are frustrated about, concerned about, et cetera, that, uh, you know, the way the law is written, that that there are questions about who can be held, how much discretion a judge has, what what crimes or what alleged crimes are releasable or not releasable, detainable, et cetera. Um, Scott Bennett's bill uh, that that was uh, introduced a couple of weeks ago now uh, would give judges more leeway. Uh, 
it's in insane. Yes, you're a threat to the community. You you need to be held uh, instead of and kind of cleans up some of those those questions or conflicting statements in in the way the law was written originally. Do you support where he's at and and what he's proposed so far? Well, again, um, I'm I'm a big fan of Scott Bennett, and I appreciate his experience as a criminal prosecutor. I also served in that role. Um, so I appreciate the work that he's done on this. I think that um, we will take the thoughts of our, our colleagues. And um, I think most importantly, we will look at the recommendations of that pretrial task force. Um, I agree with many of the things that he's done, but I think like anything else, the question remains is, um, and, and this is where, you know, when we get to Springfield, we'll really sit down and try and justify all of these things from all perspectives is how do we do our best to make sure that we're, we're getting it as right as possible before we, we implement. So yeah, if there's one thing that I've heard from judges is um, sort of a lack of discretion. Um, what cash bail gives them is an opportunity to not detain um, people that they think are, are, are a threat to society, but to set the highest level amount of cash bail that they can. So there's a little bit of discretion for them to work to try and keep people detained if they think that they're a threat. Um, there is no discretion. They can only do what the state's attorney, so if the state's attorney decides that someone is not worthy of a detention hearing and the judge feels that they're a danger, the judge can do nothing on their own. And I think judges are concerned about that. And I, I think it's something that we will look at and try and address. So, um, yeah. When it, when it comes to the, the questions of cash bail though you know it's the the argument that many of the supporters of elimination use is, is that someone who who's held on a low level offense can sit in in a county jail for for weeks and months on end but and the governor continues to use use that that uh uh that scenario that potential scenario but you were you were in the house in 2017 when the the law around cash bail change that, that lowered many of the, the cash bonds. You see a lot of a lot more recognizance bonds and, and even judges today that say, what can you pay? And and they they get out. And there's that $30 a day credit for for those that that are held. Uh, is that the same? Is this the same concern that it used to be considering the changes that you all have already made to cash bail in the state? Um, you know, I don't know. Um, I, I think, look, I, I, I always choose Patrick, uh, proactively believe that, that everyone's intentions, uh, start from a good place, even if ultimately we, we disagree on the best way out of it. Um, what I would say is this, I think that, um, you know, March of 2020, Illinois had been experiencing a, a decline in, uh, crime. And then March of 2020, uh, crime numbers shot through the roof. It, it's, and again, I, I don't, I can't wait to hear a sociological breakdown on what happened with the lockdown that caused crime to go off the rails. Um, but what I would say is this, it sort of ripped uh, the Band-Aid off and made us take a look at what's going on in public safety. And what I would say is that, and I say this to people all the time, the whole, everything that we do in the General Assembly, and you know this, is reform, right? Everything that we're doing, Every law that we propose is identifying a problem that we see 
and attempting to solve that problem and make it better, whether it's drafting errors in previous legislation or new legislation to address a problem. And what I tell people is if you don't like the way the criminal justice system is working, doubling down on it doesn't seem like a good idea. Um, I, I agree that there are disagreements on the best path forward, but when it comes to the Pretrial Fairness Act, what I would see, and I, I did go and sit and watch bond court, and there was a, so much ambiguity around this dollar value that had seemed to have nothing to do with the ultimate questions, which are the foundation of, our, of, of the whole concept of bail, which is, will someone be a threat to society and will they uh, be a flight risk. And the, the concept of, of sort of setting an ambiguous dollar figure um, without no actual knowledge um, about whether or not that person uh, meeting that threshold will be no problem or impossible. And so the idea behind the Pretrial Fairness Act was simply to say, let's take that away. Let's put the safety of the victim of crime, because that's really where it stands, even if you don't like it is the victim of the crime, society at large, and the flight risk as the deciding factors and take out the ambiguity of money. To me, it seems like a better decision-making process and should end in better results. Um, of course, what I would say also to that, and I say this all the time, is they say, oh, are you sure it's gonna work? And I say, no, it's a human system. And until you can find me a perfect human being, I don't imagine that any system run by human beings will be perfect, but I think it will function better. Um, I, I'll give you an example. Um, there was a case I watched where a guy was, uh, he was arrested downtown in downtown Chicago at nine o'clock at night on a Friday. And when he was arrested, he had, um, he attempted to flee. They caught him. He had two loaded uh, semi-automatic weapons and $200,000 of street value of drugs in his vehicle. And he was on parole for a, a, a crime of violence. And he received a bond um, of $200,000, which you would say, wow, that's a really high bond, to which I would say a guy would just- But you got, only have to pay 10%. Yeah. Well, and a guy just got out of prison and he's got 200,000. Where did he get that from? He, logic would say he's mm -hmm. part of some criminal organized crime criminal entity, and maybe they'll just bond him out and he'll be back out on the street. And so- taking that money out, right? 200,000 is a lot or is it a little? If he's connected to organized crime, maybe it's nothing. Um, if he's, you know, I would say that it would be hard to imagine he's just some street urchin with $200,000 worth of drugs and, and two pretty expensive weapons in his vehicle and a vehicle, right? So take that out. Let's focus on public safety. Um, without a doubt, it's going to be a profound change. There are going to be bumps along the road. The idea is, are we on the right track or the wrong? But I don't have to tell you that that there are concerns about uh, about crime and, and about the increase in crime, you know, especially in the city. Uh, you know, I, I live in the suburbs. I hear I hear plenty about people who who are afraid to even go into into the loop or or into part into some neighborhoods at this point. And and we've seen a pattern where and maybe this is just when it comes down to who you elect as a state's attorney but but we're seeing too many i think i think a lot of people could agree too many bad people who aren't being prosecuted whether it's whether it's because they're not because they don't have people who are willing to testify or whether they they aren't uh 
whether they don't have a case or, or for somewhat a, for what other reason. And I, I don't, I'm not in Kim Fox's head for, for many reasons, but uh, what, how does this law in, in your mind and, and if for your constituents who, who hop on the Edison Park Metro every day and go downtown, have, how does it make them safer? Because I think they look at this and, and hear about this and say, it's less likely for for people who commit crimes, whether they're first offenders, low level, et cetera, but people who are who are alleged to commit crimes, we're putting more of them back on the streets and making more threats to us. Is how how do you respond to that? Um, well, I would say I don't know that to be the case. The um, uh, Loyola University did a study on this, and they said that seventy five percent of the people that are currently in the bond system would be eligible for detention under the Pretrial Fairness Act. 75% of them would be eligible to be detained. Under the current system, 75% are not being detained. They're being released on some form of money bond. So potentially, you know, again, I'm not saying that that's how it will actually turn out. But what I'm saying is, is that um, right now we have a system where very, very bad people do very, very bad things. And because they have access to money, they can buy organized criminal entities. They can buy their way out of jail and go back and terrorize neighborhoods. And I think that that's wrong. So I think it, it fundamentally does make it safer if we know that really bad people can't buy their way out. Um, as to low-level offenses, what I would say is that you know our, our country, if, if you are a patriot and you really believe in our system of democracy, was founded on the principle that you innocent until proven guilty and that you shouldn't languish in jail um, simply because you have you don't have access to the same money that someone else did. So it makes our system fairer. I think it, with the focus on on the um, the victim of the crime and the, the threat to society, I think it has the potential to do things again, you know, the devil's in the details in the application. But what I would say is this too, the problem that we're experiencing crime to, to tie it all into bail is is wrong. It is a we are having a problem with our entire criminal justice system and we need to really look into it. Let me just say this. City of Chicago, one of the crimes that many people are afraid of and one of the things we're seeing a big rise of is carjackings, right? Carjackings. Well, million dollar bond for every carjacker and, and hang them and that'll prevent the crime, right? We will, we will, um, we will. I don't think we have the gallows. No, I know. I'm, I'm, but you know, of course, I'm, I hear, I'm, I know what you're saying. I'm being dramatic here. My yeah, of course. Point is, is that lock them up and throw away the key is not a deterrent if you don't catch anyone. In 2021, the arrest rate, the arrest rate, not, not conviction rate, but the arrest rate on carjackings in the city of Chicago was 4%. 96% of the people that committed carjackings were never even arrested, let alone convicted. So we need to look at how our criminal justice system is working. I, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in investing to solve problems. I really believe that is our responsibility. So I'm a big believer in, in you know, we one of the bills that I passed was setting up a, a multi-jurisdictional task force to treat carjackings as the crime that it's become, and that is an organized criminal entity. I believe in investing and training for our police officers and support and, and working through these things to make sure that police officers have the tools, the technology, the resources they need to do 
better at their jobs. 4% arrest rate is not enough. So there are so many things about our criminal justice system that's not working and that have changed. And so to hone in on one, and I get it, it's political and I get why we do it. And, and I think it's fair, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that people shouldn't be concerned about it. Um, you know, as much as I'm a supporter of it, I agree. A hundred of 102 states attorneys saying we should really look at this thing means we ought to really look at this thing. I'm happy to say that's what we're doing. But I think we need to look at, um, especially in the city of Chicago, not just investing in police officers, but a rise of crime means a rise of criminals. I think we need to invest in these under this these disadvantaged communities and make sure that kids have quality alternatives, wraparound programs, uh, summer jobs programs, after school violence interruptions program, mental health addiction counseling to make sure that we're giving them opportunities to succeed. And 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 uh, you know I'm happy to say that Illinois is on that path. Those things are going to take a lot longer. They will not solve crime overnight. But I think that's the wholesale issue that we need to work on. And before we let you go, Senator, one of the reasons I wanted to have you you on today and, and appreciate the time is is the fact that your district, uh, which is kind of the northwest side of Chicago, some of the northwest suburbs, you actually have have, have my my neighborhood uh, in in just across the across the city limits in the suburbs, and uh, you have your the northwest side is is famous for having a lot of police officers who live there. Uh, and and firefighters as well, first responders. You, we've heard from police up and down the state, around around the state, their leaders, their chiefs, sheriffs, etc., that that feel as if the legislature, politicians, this law in general, and, and maybe maybe you maybe you just say Democrats in general, don't have their backs. That 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 you all are more concerned about criminals than the people who are putting their lives at risk to to protect and serve how how and i'm sure that you've heard some of that in 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 the neighborhoods that you represent so i guess one what are you hearing from from the police from the people you represent and two how do you respond to that um i would say that there is a lot of that sentiment but i would say that that's driven largely by sort of this ideology that has crept into the culture of policing. Um, you look at the FOP president that we currently have right now in the city of Chicago, um, and he has sort of created this idea that um, it's Democrats versus Republicans when it comes to policing. Um, that, of course, flies in the face of the facts. Um, I, I would tell you, Patrick, and, and I would say this quite confidently, that there is not a single legislator over the course of the last 10 years that has done more to improve the economic benefits, the workplace safeties, and the retirement security of police officers than the person you're talking to right now. That's me. Um, additionally, um, when we went into these negotiations over the Safety Act, um, two of the things I fought for was ensuring that police officers kept their collective bargaining rights, which was easy for me. I'd spent four years battling Governor Rauner on that issue. I certainly wasn't going to give in to Democrats' attempts to diminish it. But additionally, most importantly, kept their protection from uh, immunity from, from lawsuits, right, so they couldn't uh, lose their uh, personal belongings and their wealth and, and what they've accumulated in their life um, on a lawsuit against a police officer. So it's not Democrat versus Republican. Um, and, and again, it's sort of become a culture war that, um, as I said, police officers um, are, are public sector employees that we give our greatest confidence to. Um, 
we give them the ability to take our freedom and to take our lives. And, and we give them the authority to do that, a badge and a gun. And with that comes an enormous responsibility. And what I would say is that when a large portion of your population, um, I mean, federal consent decrees, police officers sent to jail for uh, torture and abuse, Watts, uh, uh, you know, there are all sorts of problems going on. I think police officers should embrace um, reform, police reform. Um, and I think that you can accomplish both better policing, um, better relationships with your communities, and still support the things that make police officers' job uh, something that they still want to do and that they have, uh, you know, uh, something that they can do with pride and, and retire with dignity when they're done. That's the approach I've always take, taken. No doubt about it, when I meet someone who is ideologically had decided that because I'm a Democrat, I hate police officers. Um, well, I'm not going to convince them of that. In fact, I'll say those things and I'll even hear things like, yeah, I know you, you helped our pension, but yeah, but, but still, um, I know you collect, uh, protected our collective bargaining, but still, well, you know, you're not going to make any progress with them. But those who are not ideologically drawn to one side or the other, they understand that and they respect that. And, you know, if I may be so bold, I think my last election results against the Chicago police officer indicated that I wouldn't have gotten to 67% without some police officers going, yeah, I think this guy's going to do a better job of having our backs than a police officer is. Senator Rob Martwick, thanks so much for the time. Uh, I know there's there's plenty more going on and, uh, and we could probably talk for days on pensions and guns and, and those sort of things. But uh, alas, we, we have things to do. So uh, hopefully we'll have you back soon and we can uh, we can talk soon. And I'm sure we'll see you down uh, for veto session in November. I look forward to it. Thanks for having me on, Patrick. I enjoyed it. Thank, thank you, Senator. All right, that's Senator Robert Martwick joining us uh, this afternoon. Uh, appreciate his time and uh, and and his uh, his discussion on on cash bail and on the Safety Act and and uh, some of those issues. But let's move on now to politics. So Governor J.B. Pritzker and his Republican opponent uh, Darren Bailey, the state senator, have their first televised debate tomorrow, Thursday, uh, and uh, we wanted to talk about it a little bit, preview it, what to expect. Can Darren Bailey make a race of this? Uh, all independent polls show him at least 15 points down. So we thought we'd bring in an expert. Our friend Pat Brady, who's the former Illinois Republican Party chairman, uh, did not work, uh, did not support Brady in the primary, worked for another candidate, uh, just to, to be clear on that. Uh, and uh, Pat, let me, let me just start big picture. What can Darren Bailey do in a televised debate five weeks out from the election to make a race of this? I think primarily he's got to convince the voters that he's up to the task of being governor. I mean, in these presidential debates, remember, you always talk about being presidential, but he needs to look like a governor. And in this case, it probably means that he, he's up for the task, that he understands the entire state, not just the southern part of the state. And he needs to First of all, do that. And then secondly, I think, it, which I think he's not done yet, is to sketch out exactly what he would do as governor different and or better than what J.B. Pritzker is doing. I think uh, and we've seen how this shake has shaken out with Republicans. It's they want to talk about the economy and inflation and the Democrats want to talk about abortion and Trump. And I think you'll also probably will he's going to have to somehow try to nationalize this and tie Joe Biden, some of the far left policies that the Democrats have supported and say that, that J.B. Pritzker is a, 
a junior Joe Biden. I watched the Texas debate, uh, governor debate the other night, and that's pretty much what um, Governor Abbott tried to do to Beto O'Rourke, his challenger, was nationalize it and make it about Biden. So th those are the things that he, he needs to try to do, I think. I'm not whether or not he can do them. I don't know. He's, he does have an uphill climb. The two the two men uh, did a virtual sit down last week with newspaper editors. We kind of got a preview of of their messaging with, uh, and, and you saw in in that in that instance, you could see the difference in preparation. J.B. Pritzker was very prepared, very polished, very put together. Clearly, had been doing his homework. And Darren Bailey was very freewheeling, not a lot of facts, not a lot of substance. Is is what I guess, I guess the question is, what do you expect to see out of these two? And do you think Darren Bailey can uh, can make himself look more polished? And and would could he even be more polished at this point? I, I'm sure he, I'm sure it could be. Anybody can be. We can all be. I can be. You can be. But I, that's was kind of my takeaway too from that session that. Um, he didn't seem overly prepared or didn't have an overarching message that seemed to resonate. And listen, when J.B. Pritzker, I think his first public appearance when he announced he was running for governor was on WGN radio. And I listened to it. It was a little Rick Pearson show. And I called him some people on the Republican side. I go, don't underestimate this guy. He's a very polished speaker. He's a smart guy. He's prepared. He takes it seriously. And now he's got presidential aspirations. So every time he appears, he knows that particular appearance might show up somewhere in a, in a presidential commercial. So he prepares, but for the life of me, why anybody at this level uh, that's seeking this high of an office isn't overly prepared for any and all appearances is, is, is beyond me. And it, like I said, I took away the same impression. I don't, I don't know how you could not be prepared. That being said, do people focus on Ed board meetings and some of these debates? Maybe not. There's not a lot of persuadable voters left, but again, if, if he, if he's going to stop, the bleeding here, he needs to convince people he's up for the task of being governor. You know, that's, I think, a very important part of this is how he also needs to lay some punches on the governor, too. Um, and and clear, we know that Pritzker is going to make this. Darren Bailey is a radical. Darren Bailey is opposed to abortion. Darren Bailey is Trump 2.0. If, if you're advising Bailey, how how do you hit Pritzker and make it stick with undecided? I'm not sure exactly, and I'm somewhat confused, and I think a lot of people are, exactly what issues voters are focusing on and what voters are going to turn out. I'm getting anecdotally in, up here in the Chicago area that the Safety Act and the attacks that Jim Durkin and the House Republicans and others have been making on that particular piece of legislation have been very effective. So he probably needs to, Darren Bailey needs to, uh, statewide eyes, for, for lack of a better word, the crime problem and try to put that crime problem on the back of J.B. Pritzker. And I'm not sure if the governor necessarily wears the jacket for crime problems in the city of Chicago and the suburbs, but the Safety Act, I think a lot of people, whether you agree or disagree with some of the information that's out there, and some of it's just not right on the Safety Act, uh, even Democrats think that that law is problematic and that could be a problem for the governor if the focus is on crime. And so I think that's probably one of the punches he can take. Um, I, I used to think up until a couple of months ago that maybe you could attack him on some of the COVID response and shutting the businesses down, but it appears that, that we're beyond that. Uh, but, but I think crime for Darren Bailey probably the big issue that he could punch the governor on and probably has some success.
the I, I wrote about this Tuesday in the newsletter that that I'll just there there are roughly three and a half million homes with the TV in the Chicago market. Uh, WGN six o'clock news gets a like a one point four rating, so that's roughly forty nine thousand people in Chicago watching that newscast. It's going to be lower than than that for a seven o'clock time time slot, but relatively speaking, eight point four percent undecided in the WGN poll last week. So that means you're roughly looking at 4,100 undecided voters that are watching this this debate in Chicago. There would be more downstate, obviously, but the, is is there really even much to win or lose here because there are so few undecideds left in this race? Yeah, and I agree with that. I know what those numbers are with WGN and others, but the reality is, if he either of these candidates can score a, a really defining blow or make a really good point in these debates that the multiplier of that on social media is probably 10, if not more times full of the number of people that are going to see it. It might even show up in a commercial. So I agree that the people, I don't think people tune into debates. They tend to tune into the first one more than the others. Uh, but I agree with the numbers you've cited. There are not a lot of persuadables and a lot, not a lot of those are going to be watching this debate. But again, the debates are an opportunity to maybe get that gotcha or aha moment. Um, that you can spread out on social media and commercials and other ways. What's what's the best uh, what's the best scenario for Republicans today? Because if if we look at the odds, if we look at the fact that it's October fifth and Darren Bailey still hasn't run a TV ad, I mean the chances are he's not going to win this race. But if he's losing by fifteen or twenty points, he theoretically pulls down Republicans down the ballot: congressional races, statewide races, legislative races. So if, if you're a concerned Republican who who has a, a tight legislative race or a congressional race you care about, are are you just hoping that Bailey can make can make a respectable show of this over the last month? Yeah, I think that's been the hope all along. But the reality is, Patrick, and I've said this publicly for now, for a year, that dumbass Mike Zonarovich and the people that decided that they were gonna in secret put Richard Irvin up as our nominee. And I, I listen, I like Richard Irvin. But the way that they handled this and resulting in Ken Griffin pulling out all his money, the, the, the net effect of that complete incompetence and arrogance has put the Republican Party in such a horrible position in funding and in messaging that it makes it I, I don't I don't I, I agree with what you're saying that Darren Bailey needs to perform to a certain level. Now, Trump got forty one and a half percent. If he does that well, I think it'll help down ticket. But the reality is. We are in this horrible position because Mike Zonarovich, the consultant that came in and thought he knew everything, decided to run this guy that the Republican Party didn't support. And when it didn't work out, all the money dried up. So we're in this spot because of some very arrogant and stupid people. And we're trying to do the best we can. And we can't pin it all on what Darren Bailey does or doesn't do. It had Mike Zonarovich not done this, there would have been money for House and Senate Republicans, for the other constitutional officer races, like my cousin Dan Brady, who's running for Secretary of State. If he had five million in his pocket right now, he'd dump all over Alexa Genius. He's very popular in the state. So um, people are pinning it all on Darren Bailey. I'm not pinning it on Darren Bailey. He won 57% of the vote. I'm pinning it on Mike Zonarovich, who came in here and absolutely destroyed the Republican Party in Illinois and moved back to Tennessee. So uh, I think that's <laughs> people want to blame Bailey. And believe me, there have been some problems with his campaign that he's well aware of, but the, the source of all this, this problem is a dumbass Mike Z who just decided he was going to take over the state and just absolutely destroyed it.
Pat, before we let you go, what's a win in this debate for, for Governor Pritzker and what's a win in this debate for Darren Bailey? Uh, a win in this debate for Darren Bailey is if he can stand up and uh, people can look at him and go, you know, this guy could be governor. I think a win for Governor Pritzker is just get out and not make a huge gaffe, keep a smile on your face, uh, kind of pull a Reagan with Darren Bailey, say, there you go again, and try to continue to portray Darren Bailey as a, uh, you know, um, part of Trumpism, out of touch, too extreme. Um, I, I, I suspect that the governor will probably just keep a smile on his face, take the punches and move on. I think he just wants to get these debates over with and, and move on to the election. Pat Brady, former Illinois Republican Party chairman, strategist as well. Uh, Pat, thanks so much for the time. Patrick Goyce, we'll take care. See ya. Good. All right. Thanks to our friend Pat Brady for joining us uh, this afternoon uh, on our, our live stream and podcast, uh, talking about the gubernatorial debate that's uh, next star stations around the state uh, Thursday at 7. So that's WGN in Chicago, WCIA in Champaign, Decatur, Springfield, WMBD in Peoria. Uh, so uh, you can check that out. Uh, tomorrow night and let us know your thoughts. Uh, drop us an email, send us a note, send us a message on Facebook. We're interested in hearing your thoughts on, on what you see out of that debate as well. Thanks so much for taking time with us this uh, this Wednesday uh, and uh, hope to uh, uh, have some more for you uh, next week as we continue rushing toward the November 8th general election. Uh, it's getting a little, it's getting crazy. The ads are getting fired up and uh, people are getting testy. As, as they tend to do a month out before the election. Thanks so much for joining us. Have a uh, great week, and we'll talk to you next time on The Illinois.